My Teacher's Footsteps, Chapter One, read by Nick Scott. Nick has resolved to follow the pilgrimage on foot by his teacher Ajahn Sumedho to Mankailash in Tibet, but first he needs to find out more about that pilgrimage from those who took part, and then assemble a similar pilgrimage party. Chapter One, Companions on the Path. It was a beautiful autumn day, and I was driving south through a rolling landscape of small green fields, wooded lanes. And white farm buildings, traversing the Lowland Peninsula, in North Wales. The Snowdonia Mountains rose to my left, the slopes darkening to brown, then topped off with grey. And in the distance ahead, I could make out the glistening Irish Sea again. I'd crossed it from Ireland on the morning ferry to visit Anne Dew, the doctor on Ajahn Somedo's trek to Mount Kailash. I'd known her before, so knew she suffered from ME, that strange illness, also known as chronic fatigue syndrome, where there's no vitality and the person is utterly exhausted by the least of things. I also knew this started after their Mount Kailash pilgrimage, and the trauma of that trip. Anne now lived in a Tibetan Buddhist community. Tucked away in this corner of North Wales, the hermitage of the awakened heart. At a signpost marked Cricketh, I turned off the main road. There was no problem recalling the next unusual place name, Innis, Y N Y S. But I soon realised finding the actual destination was going to be more difficult. I was now on a small sunken lane. With others branching from it, it ran downhill over an old arched stone bridge, and then started to climb. Ahead, an elderly woman walked downhill towards me. She had grey, dishevelled hair, wire-rimmed glasses, and wore an old puffer jacket against the chill of autumn. From below the jacket emerged a Tibetan nun's skirt, burgundy red. Full length, with two long folds at the back. I pulled up beside her and wound down the window to say, "I think I know where you must be from." She smiled cheerfully, "And you must be Anne's friend. I'll get in and show you the way." She directed me along more sunken lanes with gnarled old trees on their banks, saying no more than necessary. Still, by the time we arrived at the old stone Welsh farmhouse, I was struck by her pleasant likeness. She directed me along the entrance drive, past the little car park and a white Tibetan stupa, the traditional Buddhist monument decked out with prayer flags, to the back of the house, and then said, "Oh, of course, how silly of me! 
We shouldn't be here. You should be parked in the visitor's car park. It was then that I realised my pleasant passenger, who was by now disappearing round the corner, had been the teacher, Lama Shenpen Hookham. I found Anne in the small office beside the front door, working at a computer. Anne is a lanky young woman with long light hair and an earnestness about her which is broken regularly by a big smile that gives emphasis to her apple cheeks. Hi Nick, it's lovely to see you. I have to get this finished, then we can go to my caravan. This proved to be a large mobile home parked beyond a converted shed and wooden buildings used for accommodation. There we settled on the ample sofa. I got my voice recorder out and asked Anne to tell me what had happened on their pilgrimage to Mount Kailash, starting right from the beginning. Well, Nick, it all started with me putting on my rucksack to leave the house. I hadn't noticed a wasp on the strap, and as I crossed the threshold it stung me and then fell dead at my feet. I stood there a bit stunned, and I remembered you once telling me that trips with Ajahn Samedo nearly always go ridiculously well. But if they go wrong, they can really go wrong. Then my parents drove me to the airport. The others had met at Amaravati the night before, but I'd had my sister's wedding. I was the bridesmaid. Wow, that was an important day. Yes, my only sister. There's only the two of us. It was wonderful. But that's why I got to the airport before the others. When I went to check in, they said, Oh, your flight went three hours early. I mean, when does a flight ever go early? They explained they tried to contact us, how our party was the only passengers they'd failed with. But all I could think was, this trip is going to be difficult. I'd already heard about the missed flight a month earlier, when I'd been to see Andrew Yates. It was one of those Middle East airlines. Gulf Air, I think, he told me. And the head sheik, or whoever, ordered them to fly to Bangladesh, with aid for the flooding. I was the only contact, and I was at Amaravati, with no one at home. That was before mobile phones, so they couldn't get hold of us. They did agree it was their fault, but they had no direct flight for several days, so we took three planes over two days, hopping all over the Middle East. Spent a lot of time in transfer lounges and two nights in hotels. One was in a country I'd never heard of. Anyway, as a consequence, we arrived in Kathmandu nearly two days late. Andrew had told me this as we climbed in the Lake District Hills together. He lives in the small vale of Kentmere, tucked out of the way of the hordes of summer visitors, in a renovated farmhouse, the converted outbuildings, his studio and offices. We walked the Kentmere horseshoe that day. On his own, he told me, he ran it. With stops, it took us most of the day, and I couldn't have done it much faster. The recording of our conversation is dominated by my heavy breathing as we climbed. 
But then Andrew is like some kind of wonder man, a successful architect specialising in ecological buildings, a mountaineer and a sailor. He's also good-looking, has a lovely home and family, is sensitive, highly principled and surrounded by beauty. So that for me, the Buddhist concept of the heavenly realms comes to mind. I'd started by asking Andrew how he came to arrange the pilgrimage. You remember Sukhato, lanky young American monk, really enthusiastic? Yeah, he was at Harnham once, but he disrobed a good while ago. Well, he and some other young monks were hanging out with Sumedo on his 60th birthday, and someone asked if there was anything he wanted to do before he got too old. And Sumedo replied he'd like to go to Mount Kailash. So Sugudo asked me to organise it. He knew I led mountain treks, but I don't think he knew I'd already been to Mount Kailash. I didn't know that either. It was long time ago, before the Chinese let foreigners into Tibet. I'd seen this picture of the mountain on a retreat at Tibetan Monastery in Damsala, and me and another guy, Peter, decided to try. We met someone else in Gilgit, and we all swapped our clothes with Olga tribesmen and paid for a lift, hidden in the back of two trucks crossing the border from Pakistan. The other two were spotted at a chick post. Peter was six foot two with dreadlocks, and Martin had bleached blonde hair and blue eyes. But I looked more like an Olga, and I put dust on my face. I was also more discreet. At one stage, my driver gave the local police chief a ride down the road. I sat right next to him, said nothing, and looked down. So you did the whole Mount Kailash pilgrimage? Carried your own stuff? Hell of a lot of Tibetans there? And no one else? Aye, just me. Some Tibetan nuns took me into their convent as I was sick. They looked after me, fed me, and then I carried on. It was a pretty amazing experience. But afterwards I was caught trying to hitchhike onto Lake Manasarova. I hadn't seen a police car behind a lorry I tried to get a lift from. So what happened then? We'd decided to say that we'd come from Chengdu in China, as they took you back to where you'd entered. We had Chinese visas, you see. So I got this lift right across Tibet. That was great. The two Tibetan policemen really enjoyed it too. I was really inspired by Mount Kailash. The Tibetan people were just so happy. I realised they had something I really wanted. So I went to Thailand to become a Buddhist monk. I ended up at Wat Pananachat, where I became a Pakao. That's a layman wearing white with head shaved, waiting to go forth as a Buddhist monk. That's where I first met Ajahn Sumedho. He came to visit and we were all invited to his kuti. We spent the morning there, hanging out with him. The coffee was like treacle, so strong I thought it was on drugs. Did you tell him when you went to Kailash that you'd met him before? I don't think so. There were lots of us, so he'd not remember me. 
I left soon after. It was too hot. I couldn't cope with that. It was left up to Andrew to assemble the rest of the Mount Kailash party, as he did each year for the two Himalayan treks he usually ran. But with this trek he paid for himself, with Sugato's parents paying for the monks. He invited Andrew, who was an old friend of his partner Lucy. She practised Buddhist meditation and had been working as a doctor with Tibetan refugees in India. And David Johnson, who founded Lam Rim, the Tibetan Buddhist centre in South Wales. Andrew had designed his eco-friendly home nearby. Then there was a couple. Alison used to teach me Tai Chi when we lived in York. She heard about the trip and asked if she and her partner could come. I thought she'd be a real asset. She's really helpful, selfless, and she was a nurse, so she could help if Ajahn Sumedho had any problems. But I didn't know Michael. I'd done Tai Chi with him, but you don't get to know someone when you only see them teaching. He was a keen photographer, so he was to take the photos. When we got back to the house, Andrew gave me what information he could on their original pilgrimage. It wasn't much, he explained, as he wasn't great at remembering details, and hadn't found the box that held the maps, handouts and correspondence. But he could confirm their route. They had started in the Himalayan foothills in the far west of Nepal, and followed an old trading route trekking for five or six days along the upper Canali Valley and then over a high pass to one of only two border crossings into Tibet from Nepal. This one had no road leading to it. These days nearly everyone, including those going to Mount Kailash, crosses by the other one, but Andrew had wanted to follow this traditional route as it passed through the most remote and least developed part of Nepal, a region known as Humla. Andrew also gave me the contact details for the others in the party. Afterwards, over dinner, when I'd said I'd start by visiting Anne, his partner, Lucy, asked me to let them know how she was. I'm worried, Nick. I think she's taken too much on. She doesn't think of herself. But now she's sick and she's champagne's only helper, doing all the booking and running the place, and looking after Champagne. I'm worried she's being used too much. We did try to visit her when we were in Wales, but they were having a retreat. But when I met her, I found Anne wasn't being used. She was being helped by a very good teacher. After more than ten years of her illness, Anne was finally getting better. She reckoned the turning point was recognising the illness as part of her practice. Not something in the way, but something to be learned from. That was what Shempen had helped her to see. As a result, she now understood the reactions and movements of her mind that caused it and could avoid following them. She herself had been making herself ill. But it hadn't been easy to see that, she told me. First, things had to get much worse before she could start to get better. By the time Anne met Champagne, she'd been forced to give up both her work 
and her Brighton flat and was living at home with her parents. She'd had a personal interview, after which Shempen would phone her at home to offer encouragement, eventually inviting Anne to stay at the Hermitage. There, things initially went downhill. Anne wanted to be of use, to be able to help, so she would exhaust herself. Then Shempen's two main helpers left, leaving only Anne, after which Shempen herself got cancer and both of Anne's parents died. She ended up unable to leave her own bed. Just going to the toilet would leave her drained for hours. Anne told me all this in the restrained manner of a Victorian explorer recounting an expedition's hair-raising aspects, playing down every adversity. Hard and difficult were the strongest words she used, and then reluctantly, with no emphasis in her voice. But to me, it seemed like she'd been through hell. The worst part lasted six months, but there, unable to do anything else, she started to study her illness. She found a training program, helping people with ME, and joined it. Encouraged by Champagne, she had steadily got herself better, regaining her fertility. She still felt wary of her own mind, like a reformed alcoholic, she told me, always on the watch for temptation. But now she wouldn't want anything different. She realised that both the pilgrimage to Mount Kailash and the resulting illness were both in fact blessings. Only with them would she have ended up at the hermitage, and only there, and only when she was so bad that there was nothing she could do for anyone else, could she help herself. Like an addict, she had to hit bottom before she could get better. Now she recognised how driven she once was, and how that drive connected with her view that everyone else was more important than her. After our interview, Anne took me for a walk along the country lanes. It was a novelty seeing someone I recall being so wasted by her illness striding along enjoying the countryside. As we walked, she talked about the hermitage, where a strong part of the life was the devotional Tibetan practices. I'd spotted a row of small bronze Buddhas waiting on a side table, the head of each wrapped in a small piece of white cloth. Intrigued, I asked why. Anne explained how each was waiting to be filled during the upcoming retreat with relics and small scrolls inscribed with mantras. The bases are sealed, then the white cloth is removed, as until then the Tibetans believe evil spirits can get in through the eyes. The other strong aspect of their life was generosity, something Shempen both encouraged and practised herself. What Shempen was really good at, Anne told me, was giving private interviews. She so enjoyed the interviews that she was energised by them, and Anne had known her give 26, one after another, with only short breaks to eat. I asked what had happened to Shempen's husband, Mike Hookham. Was he dead? 
No, no, he's now Lama Rigshin Shinpo. He's a recognized master of the profound Buddhist teachings on sunyata, emptiness. But I thought they used to teach together. They were students of Trungpa from the 60s and all that. Trungpa even married them, didn't he? Did he leave her for another woman? That's not what's said, Anne told me slightly stiffly. They're still Dharma companions, and she still sees him as one of her teachers. He was here for the official opening by a Tibetan Lama. But it has been very hard time for her. So did he go off with a younger disciple? She, she wasn't that much younger. I thought, from the perspective of the great Tibetan teaching on emptiness, everything was equal. If you're a master of it, why should you need to leave one woman for another? Yes, and she was really hurt. But Anne also commented that maybe, as with her own illness, the separation ended up helping Champagne. I was certainly struck by Champagne's quiet confidence and wisdom when we all had a meal together. Then, when I was leaving, Anne having returned to her computer, there was Champagne walking round her stupa. That was a charming sight to see in North Wales. The layered white Tibetan stupa, like a giant tall square wedding cake, with a bronze spike on top pointing at the sky, with two lines of prayer flags fluttering from strings running to young trees nearby. And Champagne in her old puffer jacket and long burgundy nun skirt, working her prayer beads as she walked round the encircling path. As her orbit brought her to face me, I stopped to say goodbye, and we got chatting. I said how pleased I was to see Anne with so much vitality, and that I'd invited her to stay with us in the west of Ireland. Oh yes, that's what she needs, a good holiday. She needs some fun. Perhaps you can take a bungee jumping or something. And she smiled. Shen Pen had a wonderful, relaxed ordinariness to her. Everything was down to earth. But there was real wisdom there too. When I commented on how so many Westerners are self-critical, she replied, Yes, they can be so hard on themselves. In the East, they have the idea of punya. Even if they'd done something wrong, well, now they have to do something good to make up for it. But here they don't believe doing good is doing them any good, so it doesn't. They just end up in a collapsed heap of self-loathing. It's very hard to get them out of it. She was such a bright and happy woman. When I mentioned Anne draining herself with so much giving, Champagne laughed. Oh, yes, yes, us women. We just give and give and give. It's just so enjoyable. I can't stop it. And then I'm exhausted. Then I get some more energy and I give and give and give and enjoy it. And then I'm exhausted again. Men just don't get it. They say, why don't you just stop? But we can't. It's so nice to give. And she laughed again. Before I read women are from Venus and men are from Mars, I used to think I was different and had a problem. But now I realise I'm like every other woman, and we're all different. With that, she bade me farewell, and returned to circling her stupa, 
as I pulled clear on a trajectory to my car. I was pleased that Anne had found herself such a good and appropriate teacher. Spiritual teachers. Do we select them, or are they given to us? For me, it seemed a fluke when I ended up on the first retreat Ajahn Sumedha taught for lay people in 1978. But now, looking back, I'm not so sure. Ajahn Sumedho, like Champen Hookham, had a lightness to his humour. He was not trying to impress or entertain, but was simply amused at the world. Most of us were young and serious, and he made fun of us, challenging us to leap out of bed in the morning as soon as we woke and roar like a lion. But we had to do it before we heard the morning bell, and without looking at the time. We were sleeping in dormitories, so when I did wake at what I thought was the right time, I just couldn't do it, in case I was wrong and woke everyone else. Then when I looked at my clock and found it was just five minutes before the morning bell, I was so annoyed. Each morning, Ajahn Sumedha would ask with a smile, Did anyone roar like a lion? No one ever had. All I can say personally is that I realised this teacher had what I wanted. He seemingly understood my mind and what I was dealing with, and as Anne described for Shempen, he spoke with confidence of the state of freedom, which he referred to as the unconditioned. It was something I had intuited was possible, had glimpsed through meditation, but he obviously already knew it well. For Anne, it was Shempen's description of the experience of Sunyata as an open heart and heartfelt freedom. Each, though, is simply a different aspect of the same thing, the aspect that means most to that teacher. The unconditioned, emptiness, the open heart, the deathless, nirvana. They are simply different faces of the same holy mountain. From there I passed through Snowdonia on winding roads where the hedge banks and old trees were replaced with grey stone walls and villages were strung along the valleys. The road signs were all in Welsh, here in its heartland. I was on my way to visit Alison and Michael, the Tai Chi teachers who had been on Ajahn Samedo's pilgrimage, who still lived in York. After a night spent with a friend in Ruthin Valley, I continued in the early morning. The mist-filled foothills slowly petered out as I entered England. It was late November. There was a low winter sun in a clear sky, and beyond the border, the oak trees of these lower lands were still covered in cold brown leaves, waiting for the winter storms to shake them loose. This countryside was dotted with villages, and the occasional small town, the spires of their churches standing out in the distance. Those spires were replaced with old mill chimneys when I reached the Pennine Valleys, 
and climbed to cross the rolling winter moors, bleak and brown, to the wide Vale of York beyond, where the old farm buildings were made of brick baked from the valley's clay, and the ploughed fields showed deep brown earth. In York I found Alison and Michael's house, a 1950s semi-detached, on a curving quiet road where each house hid behind a hedge. It was a Sunday, and Alison and Michael were making use of good weather to work on their vegetable bed in the back garden. They came to the door with earthed hands, but stopped to clean up and offer me tea and cake. Michael was confident and forthright. Alison was solicitous. Both were grey-haired and in their middle sixties. They told me they were slowly retiring. We sat round their kitchen table. I set up the recorder and then we began, with Alison doing most of the talking. At the time we were teaching Tai Chi locally. Uh, no, you were in Devon. I was teaching and Andrew was in the class. And I said, have you got any space left? We'd been to Nepal before and were keen on mountains. Andrew had decided they needed a couple of extra people. So although we had no past connection to the monasteries or Ajahn Samedo, we joined up. That was in July 1998. I've looked up the letters before you came and we went in October. There were a couple of meetings of the group and we had to get fit. We tried out our tents, too. We had to take our own. I never could quite understand that. It was Andrew wanted to keep our ecological footprint to the minimum. Take our own gear and carry it ourselves. Michael explained how he went to see Andrew on Alison's behalf to sort out a few things like that. Yes, I'm so glad we resolved that. Alison added, I'd been trekking in Nepal and I was clear that my back couldn't have coped with a heavy load. So you were the oldest besides Ajahn Sumedha? Yes, yes, we would have been in our early fifties. Anne was the youngest and David was pretty young. Ajahn Sumedha was over sixty though. We were worried about that. So were the monks, I replied. And I explained, had they'd called me from Amaravati, concerned he'd give himself a heart attack. They told me that Ajahn Samedo claimed he was fit from working out on his rowing machine, but they were sceptical. So I'd suggested testing him with a day-long walk on the South Downs. After that, he agreed he did need training. That's how I came to take Ajahn Samedo climbing in Ireland that summer and then a month later for another trek high in the Alps, just before the pilgrimage party left for Nepal. I sat with Alison and Michael round their kitchen table for over an hour, with Alison giving most of the answers to my questions, while Michael occasionally joined in. And when they couldn't remember the details, he'd look it up in his diary and read out sections. I asked if I could use excerpts in this book, which he'd said he'd think about. I could certainly have the use of his photos, he told me. It would be good to finally see them used. He got a large box out at one point and said he would sort through them later. It was all very pleasant.
Later, after a break so they could get their garden work finished, and I could go for a walk to think about what else I'd like to ask, Michael decided he didn't want his words used in this book. So I continued the interview just with Alison, but with Michael still correcting her when he thought she had got something wrong. After a lunch together, I gathered my things to start the long journey home, and Alison gave me the photos that she'd taken with her small camera. She also showed me to the door, explaining, I think Michael's still not got over that trip. Driving home, I was sad at the outcome, but I have respected what Michael wanted and used nothing he told me about the actual pilgrimage. The photos of their pilgrimage used in the book are taken by Alison, Anne and David. David's photos were given to me by Anne, who said he would be happy with them being used. I've tried to contact David several times, in the United States where he now lives, but I've never received a reply. And there was also one other member of that pilgrimage party, Nick Hodge. It was a surprise to see a seventh person in the photos I'd been given. When I phoned to ask, Andrew said he'd forgotten him and explained that he was an old friend from Findhorn who'd been on several other treks, an ex-naval officer who was a little younger than Alison and Michael. I invited him because he had great people skills. Nice guy, really easy to be with which proved real helpful, it turned out. He died a few years ago. As I drive home, my thoughts came round to Ajahn Sumedho. They'd all said how wonderful he'd been to travel with, despite all the difficulties. It made me recall that training week climbing the mountains of Connemara with him. The boggy slopes made the going really difficult. The intermittent rain would come at us sideways. He was 61 and not in great shape, despite the rowing machine. But there were no complaints, only expressions of appreciation. He praised the food I'd carried for our midday meal. Only you, Nick, could serve a gourmet meal on the top of a mountain. Or the wonder of the view, the wildlife or whatever. Then, when we were finally down again and sitting in the car... He turned to Mish, my partner, at the wheel and said, Aren't cars lovely? There were just three of us staying in a friend's cottage and Mish wasn't Buddhist or inclined to religion. But Ajahn Sumedho made the unusual situation so easy. There was no standing on monastic procedure or on his position as such a senior monk, which would certainly have put Mish off. Instead, he fitted his rules as easily as he could around the situation. Rather than us formally offering all the food for breakfast, he suggested we just tell him it was offered so we could share the table together. Then afterwards, he would do the washing up. It was the same out walking and climbing, a lot of that time also in Mish's company. She felt totally at ease with him.
While I was meeting with the members of Ajahn Sumedho's pilgrimage, I was also arranging the party I would go to Mount Kailash with. Although I tried to keep to my intention of just inviting whoever was at the end of Alex's walk, I'd happened to visit Stephen and Martin Batchelor in France soon after my retreat. Stephen was a Tibetan monk in the 1970s and 80s, spoke the language well, even translating for the Dalai Lama back then, and wrote the first visitor's guide to Tibet, soon after it was opened by the Chinese to foreign travel. So, of course, I sought his advice on a Kailash pilgrimage. To my surprise, he'd never been to Mount Kailash, or even to Western Tibet. But how did you write that part of the Tibet guide? I asked. It's all there. I've looked. Someone else wrote that for me. So I replied, Well, would you like to come? Perhaps. Perhaps I should. He said rather hesitantly, It's the year I'm sixty and I decided to take it off to do spiritual things. Stephen's an intellectual. The most walking he might normally do is an hour's stroll in the local countryside, and then only in pleasant weather. But I realised how helpful it would be to have him along, speaking Tibetan and knowing so much about the culture. And maybe it might also be just the right challenge for his year, set aside for personal practice, and not just the physical aspect of the trip. Stephen is a sceptic, known for his books questioning the irrational aspect of Buddhism. His teaching is based on the same perspective. It's the way he approaches most things in life. I enjoy it. It's healthy to question everything. That's how we see through these ossified teachings to the truth they are trying to express. But it, too, is just another perspective. And what better way to challenge that than the most powerful and famous pilgrimage of faith in the Buddhist world? So I try to encourage him. He said he didn't like the idea of walking in from the pool couldn't we just drive to Mount Kailash in land cruisers? Others had driven in from Kashgir in the west of China, visiting the ancient western kingdoms of Tibet on the way, which he'd long wanted to see. So I suggested we could see the western kingdoms, but still walk in from Nepal, and then we could drive out after the actual pilgrimage round the mountain. He asked if we could drive in, a walk out, so that it would be downhill. I explained how walking in would prepare us for altitude, so that the Mount Kailash pilgrimage would be a lot easier. We discussed all this several times during that visit, each time discreetly. I never asked, but I suspected Stephen thought Martin might not approve. By the time I left, we'd agreed he would seriously think about joining us, and the two of us would go off for a week's mountain walking in the spring, a month before Tibet, for the same training I provided Ajahn Samedo.
After all, the two of us would be the oldest this time. So I'd already invited Stephen by the time Alex walked down the west coast of Ireland that summer. His walk finished with a boat ride out to the Skelligs, the famous monastic islands that sit out in the Atlantic. Others had joined Alex at different points, particularly for the last section, an easy day across Valencia Island from the ferry landing in the east to the high cliffs which face west, out to sea. By then I'd resolved to invite whoever was there, looking out from the cliffs to the Skellig Islands in the distance. A Buddhist monk, Venerable Apamado from Portugal, had been with Alex from the start of his walk. I joined them through County Kerry along with Podri, a thoughtful man who'd been practising Buddhism for many years, and Rory, a botany student of my partner Michelin, who undertook his doctorate on the obscure moss and liverwork mats that grow near the summit of the westernmost mountains in Ireland and Scotland. He loved mountains and had offered to guide Alex's party over those of Kerry, where he lived. Of course, the invitation didn't work out how I'd expected. Alex, of all people, was not at the actual cliffs. He'd turned off just before with an old friend who had to drive home that night. And two young women, keen on walking, failed to arrive that day. So looking out to the Skelligs with me were just Podri, Rory, Apamado and Mish. We sat there for a long time, enjoying the great expanse of ocean. With the occasional seabird flying past below, and the two islands so far out, that even from the height of the cliffs they still seem close to the horizon. Two small dark triangles, their sides so steep that it seemed unbelievable anyone could have lived on them. When it came time to leave, I told them about the Mount Kailash pilgrimage and how they were all welcome to come, if they wanted to. There was silence for a while, and then Rory said in his quiet way, nearly as a mumble, that he'd always wanted to see the Himalayas. Podrick was more hesitant, but thought he might well come. Mish was doubtful, and for Apamado, there was absolutely no question. He told us he'd always wanted to go to Mount Kailash, ever since he'd heard of Ajahn Sumedho's pilgrimage. Then, as we walked back down the cliffs, he added, Nick, it's amazing you just invited me. For most nights on this walk, I have been dreaming of going to Mount Kailash. Each night I was walking the Korra round the holy mountain. I understood why he'd looked so stunned when I made the invitation, and why he'd be the last to speak. Apamado also had a request. Nick, can you invite Ajahn Amaro? He's been working so hard since he became abbot of Amaravati. I know he took a vow to initially go nowhere for the monastery's sake. But next year that's finished. 
My heart would be so happy if he could have this. Well, that's a good suggestion. I think he knows Stephen. Not well, but they respect each other. Arjun Amro, unlike more conservative monastics who can be annoyed by what they see as Stephen's irreverence, appreciated his questioning of conventional Buddhism. However, for himself, he tends to the opposite approach, working with the entire scriptures, even the descriptions of devas, the Buddhist angels, which live in heavenly realms, or the Jatakas, the Buddha's past lives, which many simply dismiss as fictional stories. Ajahn Amaro looks for teaching in it all. Yes, that's a very good idea. It would be interesting to have the two of them with such different perspectives. And I could also invite Ajahn Amaro to join our mountain training walk, as he too was nearing his sixties.